welcome to the show, Archbishop Corleone. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's very kind of you to share your very valuable time with us. There are a couple things we wanted to talk to you about. One of them is an op-ed that you recently published in the Washington Post, where you pushed back against recent statements made by Catholic politicians who have denounced uh, a new state law in Texas that prohibits abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Why is a very powerful piece that you wrote, and and it's I know it speaks to the hearts of many Catholics who are watching in disbelief as politicians. Who who tout their Catholic faith, who talk about how important their faith is to them, at the same time are very confident in attacking a beautiful piece of legislation like the one in Texas that protects babies. What drove you to write this very powerful piece? I've been very concerned about the growing rhetoric around abortion and the failure of so many people to recognize just how evil it is. And whenever there's any sort of even reasonable, minimal kind of regulation that there's this vehement reaction and they keep getting more and more radical. Now we see it happening again with the Texas heartbeat law. How can anyone find it unreasonable that if a human being has a heartbeat to consider the human being alive, uh, that's the, the sign of death right at the end of life. There's mm-hmm. no heartbeat. And so we see this radical pushback to codifying it in the law and, and now even before the heartbeat bill uh, excluding the Hyde Amendment from the budget appropriations. So I think the problem is people not recognizing truly how evil abortion is, even though the protagonists know that they're wrong. It's so clear that they know that they're wrong because they will not answer a simple, straightforward question about life in the world. They'll change the topic or they just won't reply. So that already indicates that they know their position is indefensible. So to highlight uh, how are we as faith leaders supposed to respond to this, I use the example of an evil we can all easily agree on now, but at one time was not agreed upon. And I'm old enough to remember uh, what uh, the civil rights movement and the pre-civil rights health, there was disagreement about it, and Archbishop Rummel was a very uh, courageous uh, pioneer in, in pushing for civil rights against the resistance of some powerful people, including classic Catholics in the society there. And he was accused of the same things that we hear people say nowadays about bishops are meddling in, in politics, and we should stay in our own lane, and, and all this. And I wanted to show that he went so far as to excommunicate those three prominent Catholics to show that Penal sanctions are not like a relic of sort of a medieval church or something like that, but uh, they are a tool to be used to help bring about the conversion of the erring Catholic and, and repair scandal. So I wanted to make that very clear on an issue that network everyone agrees upon, but didn't back then. Archbishop, oh. that example that you gave was so powerful, and I learned a lot about that time in the church and just the extraordinary measures that Archbishop Rummel did to desegregate his diocese. And it was such a good reminder of how often the church truly is at the forefront of these important civil rights battles. That example and and this example of um, what's happening with the debate over the Texas law has led people to use this phrase they call weaponizing the Eucharist. Can you speak to that? Is is that something that the church is doing? Is that a fair categorization? Who's really weaponizing the Eucharist when we have politicians who are claiming to be devout Catholics and going to communion, but they're 
define, it's not just a matter of defining church teaching, it's defining a fundamental human right. So let's really weaponizing it. Now, that's why I gave the example of Archbishop Rummel. No one, people then would have seen it that way. No one now accuses him of having weaponized the Eucharist when he issued those excommunications. And you know, Pope Francis recently issued a his book, Six of the Code of Canon Law, is a section that has to do with penal law, and he revised it to make it more more usable, easily applicable, and stronger. And in the letter with which he promulgated it, he speaks about the need to apply uh, disciplinary sanctions, and he even says there was great danger, uh, great damage done in the past by a failure to appreciate this close relationship between the exercise of charity and recourse when necessary to disciplinary sanctions. And he goes so far as to say negligence on the part of a bishop in resorting to the penal system is a sign that he has failed to carry out his duty honestly and faithfully. So the whole point of this, and he, he, he lays out the three aims of penal sanctions, the restoration of the demands of justice, the correction of the guilty party, and repair of scandals. So nobody accuses Rummel of having weaponized or, or politicizing the issue. Your Excellency, isn't it true that when a politician is corrected by his bishop, when when it when it rarely when it happens rarely, but it happens, isn't that bishop isn't he helping the politician to understand his or her participation in a moral evil, which has grave consequences for that own person's soul? It's not just about how the politician is affecting other souls and and other people and leading them to sin through scandal, but also saving the politician from that weight of that terrible moral evil that he carries. Precisely. That's what, uh, again, these three aims. One of them, uh, Pope Francis says, the correction of the guilty party. To move the erring Catholic, they are in a very dangerous spiritual situation, and this this is not uh, conducive to their eternal salvation. We want to bring them to conversion and to uh, being in a spiritually whole whole place and in the right place before God. So that that certainly is a primary consideration, but, uh, along with the other two. Repair of scandal, this causes great scandal when people prominent in public life defy the, any kind of church teaching, let alone something that has to do with basic human rights. The third, and so repairing scandal, and then the demands of justice here. We have a whole segment of our of our population that's not even being accorded the right to life. Again, if we look back to the pre-civil rights South, I mean, we shudder in horror, we can't believe it happened that lynchings were carried out, and although it wasn't technically legal, it was condoned, and people did it with impunity, and uh, and it was, you know, a wink and a nod. Uh, this is horrendous. And yet now we have that abortion is, is on the same level. They both involve killing innocent human life. And here we have politicians not only winking and nodding and condoning, they want to make sure it's legal all throughout pregnancy. It's widely and easily accessible. And now to get the government to pay for it. Archbishop, you write in your piece so eloquently, you say, you cannot be a good Catholic and support expanding a government-approved right to kill innocent human beings. The answer to crisis pregnancies is not violence, but love for both mother and child. And I so appreciated this point because as all of us who are pro-life advocates know, we're constantly accused of not caring about uh, mothers and of being pro-birth, things like that. You talk a little bit about this in your piece, but you shed light on the truth about this, that the bill does earmark money. And, and no doubt, you know, in your own diocese, you see an incredible amount of time and money and volunteer efforts that go into truly giving women an empowered choice and helping them both to thrive. 
five. That's their typical empty rhetoric that's not based in reality. The ones that are really giving women choice, alternatives to abortion, are, are people of faith. They're the ones running these pro-life crisis pregnancy clinics. And that's why I'm so happy with what Texas did in channeling all that money into their alternatives to abortion uh, program. That's exactly what we have to be doing. Again, surrounding the woman with love and support. And uh, it's people of faith who are doing that. Those people who claim to be pro-women should be applauding Texas for doing this. They're giving women real choice, real support for, for making a happy choice, a choice for life. And who are the ones who help women who have gone through that terrible experience to come to healing? Uh, she's not even, so often, not even allowed to talk about it. She would be shut down just to, and so that pain leads away at her. It's people of faith that are helping to bring her to a place of healing. So to be truly pro-life is being pro-woman. Do you hope, uh, Your Excellency, that, that some of these Catholic politicians read your piece and are inspired to rethink their support of abortion? I would hope so. It's going to take more than one event, more than one effort. We have to just continue to mount a campaign and build on momentum. The civil rights movement didn't succeed because of the excommunication that Archbishop Rummel uh, imposed, but he was riding a wave of momentum. Society was shifting in that direction. And I think this is what the pro-abortion people see. They see there's a shift in momentum going more toward the pro-life side, which is why they're getting more and more uh, radical. So we need to keep building up that momentum uh, so people get the message just how evil it is. But there are other, there are alternatives for women. Uh, you know, they say they're for choice, but it's really only women of means that have the option to give birth and, and raise the child. Uh, women who are poorer, even middle-class, working-class women, they don't have those resources that more well-to-do women do. Again, to be truly pro-woman is to provide her with these resources so she can make a happy choice. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, with Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association, and we're talking to Archbishop Cordelion of San Francisco. Now, Your Excellency, you wrote a wonderful piece this past weekend on a totally different subject. You wrote it with Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles, and it's about one of my favorite saints, San Junipero Serra, and you and Archbishop Gomez pointed out that the, the, the way that the California legislature is calling San Junipero Serra basically a genocidal maniac <laughs> is a horrible thing and it's an injustice to all the people of California and indeed the United States, especially Hispanics like me, who revere him as, as a saint who represents uh, so much of our past and our, our encounter with this new world, whether we carry in our blood the, the indigenous uh, races and the Spanish. Why did you feel driven to write this piece and and what do you hope comes of it first of all it's uh, personal for me and one it's it's the prince there's principle involved but it's it's fueled more by that personal connection i feel to him i grew up just a little over three miles away from the first mission he established in san diego so i've always felt felt the closeness to him. he was like sort of like a neighbor of mine you know when <laughs> i was growing up and the more i learn about him the more i'm so inspired by him all the great sacrifices he made to defend the indigenous people here and to care for them. Again, this rhetoric of the legislature is not based in reality. Now, there were hardship, you know, there was a lot of the indigenous people died because of disease that the Spaniards brought, that's true, but there wasn't an intentional genocide against them during the mission period. That happened when California went into the American period, when it, early on when it was a territory and then a state. There were governors who funded militia to go after Indians and kill them. 
and they there was a bounty on the head of an Indian. So uh, there's an ignorance of what uh, California perpetrated later on in its history, and there were yeah, of course bad things that happened uh, when the Spaniards were there, but the Franciscans were there to defend the people, educate them, evangelize them, and uh, help them become equal citizens to the Spaniards who came. And the whole idea of the mission system was to teach them how to how to farm, how to domesticate animals, uh, how to be you know good Catholics and equal Catholic Spanish citizens, and then hand the territory over to them for self governance. But when the uh, California went into the Mexican period and the um, Mexican government secularized the missions, that whole vision fell apart. I, I like to point out of uh, the physical reminder, people can try to rewrite history. You can't rewrite buildings. We have a physical reminder of what the Franciscans did to protect the, the Indians because there were 21 missions, right? Four of them had uh, were military centers, so there was a presidio attached to the mission. The presidio was the barracks for the soldiers. So uh, the wherever you see that in San Diego, in Santa Barbara, Monterey, San Francisco, the presidio is miles away because they figured out early on they had to get the Indians away from the soldiers because the soldiers were, were uh, abusing them. So the mission and the church and the friary, one place, the presidio was miles away. So it's uh, I'd like to point out the physical reminder we have of what the Franciscans did to try to protect the indigenous population. Your Excellency, you actually performed exorcisms at the, the places where the statues have been vandalized. Is this something that the church has done when things like this have happened, or was this something new that you personally felt called to do because of your deep ties and, and personal reverence for for the man and the legacy, and, and as you say, the, the physical uh, reminder of that legacy? Well, this was a minor exorcism from, Saint, uh, from Pope Leo XIII, so the prayers have been around for a long time, and the idea of using those prayers um, where evil makes itself present it's been around. I, I said when I saw the first the first statue they uh, just uh, defamed in San Francisco, the one in Golden Gate Park. When I saw the scene, I knew I felt powerfully the evil that was present there. All when I saw the statue go down and people cheering, you know, and gleefully. You know, I just it was just so evil to me. I, I knew I had to do something. So that uh, that inspiration came to me to do those that minor exorcism. We prayed the rosary, did those prayers. It's kind of like an extended St. Michael the Archangel prayer, hopefully, and uh, blessed it with holy water, blessed the ground with holy water. We needed to purify that part of the evil that made itself present there. And then I had to do it again at Mission San Rafael, which is in Marin County, just to the north of San Francisco, also in our archdiocese, where they actually went on to the parish grounds to deface and topple the statue of uh, St. Junipero Serra. These attacks against San Junipero, whether they are attacks against his statue or attacks against his memory in the, in the legislature with this act um, defaming him, what is at the bottom of this, do you think, Your Excellency? Is it, a, is it anti-Catholicism? Is it an effort at, at erasing our past and our traditions and replacing it with something more <laughs> radical and progressive? It's all of that. All of that? It's, it's all of that. Cancel culture is essentially canceling out Western civilization and replacing it with something different. That's why you see this thing about changing names. So it's about canceling out, and well, the church built Western civilization, so it's a way of canceling out the church. The church is, we, we have to be strong and hold to the faith because we're the only check on society going off the rails. 
here and becoming very unjust and oppressive. So we have to be the voice of conscience. That means each of us have, have to live our own faith with integrity, right? If we, we can't be the conscience of the society if we ourselves are compromised. So it's a first and foremost a call to us for our own personal ongoing conversion. But it, it is essentially about uh, wiping out, wiping out the church and Western civilization to, to replace it with a new, very secular and, and harmful idea. Now, some of these attacks, maybe all of them, are made in the name, uh, ostensibly, of, of unity and, and racial, racial harmony and uh, supporting the oppressed, in this case, the indigenous people. But my experience of this has been uh, exactly the opposite, that it creates disunity and mistrust and a lack of, you know, one as a Hispanic feels unloved when one's a saint is being desecrated. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, for us, it's sacrilegious. There's, there's no sensitivity to regard for others or what they hold sacred or, or sense of unity. One gets the impression that their idea of unity is uh, everyone agrees with us and then we'll be one. <laughs> Those who disagree have to be banished. Mm-hmm. They, they seem that rather than, understandably, we're going to have differences of opinion, but uh, there's if we can sit down and honestly dialogue, that means you're open to trying to understand the other, what the other's values are, how the other, even if you're not going to agree, uh, you, you at least try to understand. That's what I don't see happening in our society anymore, and that's what really worries me. Your Excellency, my understanding is that the bill is now awaiting signature from the governor, who himself, uh, I understand, to be a self-professed Catholic. Is there any hope he he won't sign it? And what can Catholics do in these final hours to have their voices heard so that he's not, so that Unipero Serra is not canceled, as you say? <laughs> uh, make their voices heard. Flood his office with phone calls emails, letters, have public manifestations in support of Father Sarah. And uh, he was such a virtuous man. He he made such tremendous sacrifices to defend the Indians, far more than people today would be inclined to do. So they need to make their voices heard in those ways. And, of course, to pray for that. Well, thank you so much, Archbishop. Thank you for for your time, but thank you very much for writing these two pieces in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and reminding us of, of what's important as Catholics, especially, as you say, holding the line on our civilization as we are apparently the last uh, the last bastion of, of Western civilization uh, is the Church. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Archbishop. You're welcome.